How many of you here are parents? Yep, you can put your hands up. Now, how many of you are willing to admit that before you were parents, you thought you knew everything about parenting? Almost the same number of hands for you out there in Cyberland. So we've got an honest group here at Grace Community Church this morning. So many of us had this parenting thing all figured out before we had been parents for a single hour. I know that you can recall yourself standing in line at the grocery store while that child in front of you threw an absolute fit for this reason or that. And your first thought was, my child will never do that. And then you progress to, if that parent only knew this, fill in the blank. We observe, we diagnose, and we treat. All without having a single clue what we're talking about. We don't have a clue because we've never been there. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was introduced to a discipline called biblical counseling. God was really good to me then because at that time, I was headed for a crisis. Uh, shortly after my introduction to biblical counseling, I ran full speed into the psycho-emotional brick wall we call depression. I want to start with a question about what depression is. And I'll do that by telling you what it's not. Depression is not temporary feelings of even deep sadness. That's being said. It's not feeling like you're always tired. Mom's in the room. Are you always tired? Depression is not the fact that you are having incredible trouble focusing. It's not the loss of physical strength and desire for things you once loved. Depression is not the inability to get out of bed in the morning. It's not that constant irritability that you have absolutely no ability to control. Depression is not the inability to sleep, even though you've never been so tired in your life. Depression is not feeling so empty that you feel like you have absolutely nothing to give to those that you love most. And depression is not the sense that you're completely alone and isolated. Do you know what depression is? Every single one of those things I just mentioned all at once. That's depression. I've been there. At the extreme poles of the people that I just spoke to, there are two groups. At one end, there are people that felt every single word I just said with soul-gripping gravity. You may have been on the verge of tears or completely unable to hold them back again. Or maybe you are completely numb because numbness is what has gotten you to today, February 28, 2021. 
if that's you, I love you. We are here. Let's talk. The group at the other end of the spectrum includes those for whom I gave the opening illustration. If you have never been depressed, you don't know what it's like. It can look exactly like a lot of things that we are prone to judge. It looks like laziness and weakness and ineptness. If you're in that second group, I love you. Hear me, please. Right now, hear me. Don't be the Walmart checkout line parent with your brothers and sisters. They don't need your judgment. They need your love and support and understanding. And it might just keep them here in this world. If that's you, I love you, we're here. Let's talk. I was a young church leader, and I had some stuff in my life that had already accumulated. There was stuff that I knew I needed to make right, but I hadn't. Now this is important. They weren't all huge things, but they were real things. As an example, years prior when I was dating my lovely bride, I can't say that and not get emotional. <laughs> After church one night, uh, her dad cornered me. And he asked me that one question that every Christian dad asks. If you were to die tonight, do you know your destination? I'd been dating his daughter a little too long, and he wanted to know. So with as much confidence as I could muster, I said, of course. I was a Christian. I was saved by Jesus. And now you're all going, what's the problem? The problem was that at that moment, I was not as sure as my words indicated. I had uh, pledged my life to Jesus at a, summer camp, a Christian summer camp when I was in middle school. But at that very point in my life, when my father-in-law asked me that question, I was wrestling with that very question. And yet I didn't have the confidence to tell him that. So I said, of course. From that day forward, the answer that I gave to my father-in-law bothered me. It didn't bother me all the time, but it was always there, kind of in the undercurrent of my conscience. There were other things like that that contributed. But then came the precipitating event. I was a biochemist at the time, and I worked in basic biochemistry of how fungi rot wood. This is where you all cheer. You know why we need that? Because if I talked anymore, you'd all be sound asleep. I've got to give you a little science, but I promise I won't go too deep. I was in the middle of a synthesis. What that means is I was building a very large molecule from small ones. 
And the end result of this synthesis was going to be years worth of material for experiment. The synthesis, in my practice I tried to say synthesis a lot of times and it came out just like it just did. So we're gonna try that again. The synthesis was multi-step and took weeks from beginning to end. And even though I had invested a lot of time in the synthesis, I'm gonna keep saying it just so I can get it right. Um, that was not the greatest expense. The true expense actually came from the financial cost of the building block molecules that I was using to build the bigger molecule. Uh, in our experimental design, it called for the product, the end product, to be radioactive. The truth is, scientists love to play with radioactivity. It is one of the greatest tools there is to discover God's design in biochemistry. Um, now I expect some of you, especially the comic book fans, are wondering, does he turn green and throw things when he gets angry? I don't turn green. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> uh, we had spent an incredible amount of money to purchase carbon-14 labeled precursor, those building block molecules. Carbon-14 is the radioactive isotope of carbon, and carbon is the primary building block of all biological molecules. So we spent a bunch of money on radioactive starting points and I begin work through the synthesis. At every step, we lose radioactive quantities of material, but you factor that in from the beginning. So you buy a bunch and you know you're gonna lose a bunch. That's something that we expect during the course of a synthesis. Do you know what we didn't expect? Me, dropping the flask with all of the material in the hood where I was working and it shattering into a million pieces. That was me, staring in total disbelief at what had just happened. Can I confess something? My mind went, thanks Eli, he gave me a nod. My mind went to directly to, how do I hide this? Thanks for that, Adam and Eve. After a few deep breaths, I collected myself, and I walked down to my boss's office. And we had a discussion, and he was gracious, and we figured out how to proceed. But you know something? Even telling that story today, I can feel my heart beat a little stronger and I can feel a little unwelcome tightness in my chest. This was over 20 years ago. It was a big deal to me. That is the point in my life when depression grabbed me. Every single one of those descriptions that I gave earlier, every one of them was me and more. God has graciously allowed me to forget some of them and I'm grateful for that. As I walked through that time, I battled depression on my own for a bit. I was afraid to tell my wife because I was supposed to be strong for her. And I was anything but strong. I sunk far enough to experience suicidal ideation, entertaining thoughts, 
about how to exit this life. Convinced that everything would be better that way. The pain and the emptiness would end. And I would find relief. When you suffer for depression, that word relief, that's what you want. That's me in my mid-twenties, ready to check out. That is depression. If that's you right now, I love you. We are here. Let's talk. I was afraid to tell my wife because I was convinced that my stuff would be an undue burden to her. She was fully engaged in church and raising our two oldest. And in my state, I couldn't bring myself to tell her what was going on. You know what happened when I told her? She grabbed her planner and she said, all right, I'll schedule in for next Tuesday for about an hour or so. No, that's not what she did. <laughs> I did get somebody to look up, though. <laughs> um, she grabbed me in a bear hug that I still remember to this day. As I sobbed uncontrollably in the kitchen of our little duplex in Ma Madison, Wisconsin. And in that moment, she transferred strength to me to go on. If you're there right now, I love you. We are here. Let's talk. <sighs> to be sure, no two depression stories are the same. The plot line that leads you there will very likely be completely different than mine. Maybe your path comes from circumstances that you had absolutely no control over. Victims of abuse very, very frequently suffer from severe depression. They're victims. And yet along with their victimization comes the added burden of depression. According to the National Institutes of Mental Health, approximately 18 million Americans suffer from depression at any given time. My point for both groups that I spoke to earlier is that the road to depression is unique for each traveler. But the path back from depression for the believer is the same in every case. Also, the path back might have something to do with Jesus and your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is okay to grin from ear to ear right now. I want to introduce you to a couple of verses that I love dearly and many would argue are the truth that form the cornerstone or foundation to this discipline we call biblical counseling. Now, we're going to move quickly. I'm going to cover large swaths of scriptural territory, um, so I would suggest you just stay with me. And if you want all the references that are in this thing, I will get them to you later, I promise. Um, and now, we will move on. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. So this comes at the very beginning of Peter's second letter. And this is, we've talked about it before, the super mature fatherly Peter who is spending his last time on this earth penning letters by which he wants desperately to give those he loves what they need to make it through their lives. 
This is what it says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. His divine power. Let's see what I'm... So I got another confession. This week, as I was preparing for this, I ordered good old-fashioned laser pointers, and then I was practicing, and I realized PowerPoint gives me a laser pointer. When did that happen? I was completely oblivious. It tells you how old I am. Anyway, his divine power. Who's him here? Who's his? It's fairly obvious. It's Jesus. In fact, in the first two verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, Jesus is mentioned three times in the introduction. Um, so Jesus has got this divine power, and he's set to give us something. I think it's going to be awesome. What does he plan to give us? We move down here. He plans to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's sort of a central truth to this passage. Something worth chewing on. He says all things. The scripture is telling us that there is nothing of significance that lies outside of the reach of the divine power that's been given to us. To us. Such rich language. And it really doesn't leave anything out. For the Christian, what is there that lies outside of the combined categories of life and godliness? that is of any importance? That's a question I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's worth rehearsing. What lies outside of life and godliness for us? I think if we're willing to be honest, the answer is not much. So Jesus has given us divine power to accomplish everything he will require of us. And then he's going to explain how? The mechanism by which we receive it. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and excellence. Knowledge. How do we get this power? The knowledge of Jesus. And what does that mean? Ultimately, Peter is holding out the word of God and the one who is the word as the answer. The answer for us to receive the power to get through our stuff. Jesus and his word. As we need the power to overcome, we are directed to study Jesus and to study his word. That's where the answers are. Look for him there. Grow in your understanding of him because his word contains very great promises. The promises that will allow us to be partakers 
of the divine nature, more like him. The one who takes naps in boats in the middle of storms. The take home from these verses is this. God through his word and the promises in Jesus has given us what we need to make it through the stuff that life throws at us. Depression, marital issues, drugs, alcohol, pornography, and on and on. As the believer, our guide through the hard stuff, the stuff that we might be tempted to seek help from elsewhere, the answers are found in his word and the refuge of Jesus in his church. I believe that. Back up to the top, we have this granted to us. Who's us? It's us. Us gathered here right now and online. It's us. So here's one of the punchlines, at least from this passage. Who's qualified to be a biblical counselor? It's still highlighted on the screen. Us. Us. Nowhere in the, in the scripture do you find the vocational biblical counselor. It's nowhere. Some would argue it's the calling of the pastor, and I think there's good arguments to be made there, but the vocational biblical counselor, you don't find it in the scripture. By God's design, his perfect design, his perfect intent, you and I are biblical counselors. He wants us to grind things out together. He wants to, us to do that with love, kindness, patience, wisdom, compassion, understanding, and grace. God has supplied us with everything we need to do that. Um, I can't take a lot more time on this particular point, so we'll talk through 1 Corinthians 10.13, and then I would suggest, if you're interested in this, Titus chapter 2 is spectacular on this point. No temptation that has overtaken you except which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Generally, when we look at this verse, we're in it, right? We're the ones in it. We're the ones struggling to survive. And we grab on to that. There is no temptation that's overtaking you except that which is common to man. It, these are, this is a lifeline. But I would suggest to you that this verse also speaks to those who are past their storms. There's no temptation that is overtaking you except that which is, which is common to man. If your storm is behind you, you have the responsibility to use that storm and that victory to help somebody who's currently in the storm. And God will help you do that. God has an army of biblical counselors, and they are you and I. All right, back to my story. After revealing my secret to my wife, I called the biblical counselor who had actually taught classes that I had taken earlier, and I started seeing him. The rest of this sort of follows the concepts that God used to change the trajectory of my life. So what you see in front of you is simply intended to be 
the timeline of a believer's life. At some point in the believer's life, we encounter Jesus, right? And through whatever means, he convinces us that redemption is the cure for what ails us. God brings us to an understanding that life is empty and lost without him, and we need him. Ephesians 1.7. So, sorry Tim Tebow, but I put Ephesians 1.7 first because I like it better, but John 3.16 works as well. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So for the believer, Jesus steps into our timeline and changes our destiny and our destination. And then, of course, from that point forward, everything's easy. We float through life on a cloud like an angel. He immediately takes away all of our concerns and burdens and we are happy-go-lucky from there on out forever and ever. Amen. Right? What? Not your experience? I've already given away. It wasn't mine. <sighs> what gives? <laughs> Reality hits. We're still redeemed, but we live in an unredeemed world. If you were to take note of the frequency with which, as Kelly and I have discussions about the state of the world or the state of anything, toward the end, we just punctuate the discussion with the word Maranatha, you would be alarmed. The world's awful. And it doesn't appear to be getting any better. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are redeemed, but we are still trudging through an awful world whose currents pull against our hearts and attempt to pull us away from him. That setting is what introduces the danger of disappointment and depression. We are there. And when we are struggling, our life doesn't look much like our expectations. Where is God? And how does he see us in those moments? Does God peer straight down at us from his heavenly perch and shake his head? Does he stand there in wonderment that we've blown it again? Is he that frustrated parent who can't seem to get it right with their child? Romans 7 is the Apostle Paul's own self-assessment. We're not going to read it all now, but I would encourage you, like I did earlier, spend some time in the passage. After understanding it better, I find it oddly encouraging. Here's Paul's self-assessment from verses 18 and 19. <laughs> For I know that nothing good dwells in me, 
that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Boy, when reality hits us, we are able to say with clarity with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's verse 24. Hey guys, this is Paul. He's kind of the number one hero of the New Testament, except for Jesus. Right? Hands down. He's writing these honest and raw words about himself. I guess when I feel that way, I'm in pretty good company. Here's a point you need to get with me, okay? Every criticism that Paul levels against himself is performance-oriented. Everyone, check me on it. Come back next week with your homework done and you tell me why I'm wrong. It was all about what he did or didn't do. He lied to his father-in-law. He dropped a flask with tens of thousands of dollars of investment in it. His dire assessment was of his performance. When we are in the middle of our humanness, it is easy to believe that God sees us and shakes his head at the messes that we are. But remember, but God. Here is where we reach the greatest, in my opinion, and since you're listening to me, that's all the only opinion that matters, transition in the New Testament. Romans 8.1. Paul just gets really raw and really honest about what a screw-up he is. And these are the next words he says. There they are. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear what he just said about himself? And then he writes these words. <clears throat> if we allow ourselves to believe that we relate to God, or more importantly, he relates to us, based on our performance, we are inextricably on the path to discouragement. When I look at myself, I'm right when I say, I've made a miss of me. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation. If you are a believer, God does not see you in your mess. 
He sees you and relates to you. Filtered through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, as redeemed, completely clean, and perfect because of Jesus. Not because of your performance. Patrick, that song this morning, the new one, spectacular. Folks, that is identity. That is your identity if you are a believer. Washed clean and presented as perfect before a holy God. As a part of my journey, uh, I memorized Ephesians 1 into the beginning of 2. Not going to read it all, but this is what Ephesians 1 into the beginning of 2 says about us. We are the recipients of all of the blessings of heaven. We were chosen by him before he took on a single creative act. He predestined us to be completely accepted into his family. Adopted. Because he made us holy and blameless. Patrick talked about that this morning. He made us holy and blameless. He gave us redemption and forgiveness. You really need to read it because the language is incredible. He lavished us with wisdom and insight so that we could understand his purposes. We have a heavenly inheritance. And guess what? That inheritance doesn't rust or fade. It's permanent. Nothing can touch it. He sealed us, which means that we operate with his full endorsement because of the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us. He made us alive when we were dead. He caused us to be seated with Jesus in heaven. In all of this, so he is able to show us his immeasurable grace and kindness. Friends, when God looks down at you in your mess, that's what he sees. He doesn't see your mess. He sees you as redeemed through the blood of Jesus. This transition that I talked about between Romans 7 and Romans 8.1, it's simply the process of truly becoming who we already are in God's eyes. That's it. God has already made all of those things a spiritual reality for you. And we spend our life becoming who we are. That is identity. Identity provides stability through life's storms. Returning to my story, I've never been back to where I was 20 plus years ago. Never. Praise God for that. He graciously showed me who I really was. And it was that understanding that the things that I had done, my performance, 
lost their power over me. As I realized who I was in Christ, the stuff I did, the mistakes I made, they lost their power. That does not mean we haven't been through our share of storms since. But it does mean that understanding my identity, who I really am, gave me fuel and perseverance and faith to walk through my storms. And I promise you he'll do the same for you. Okay. To wrap this up, three points. Fixing our struggles is not easy. We are bent and broken. It takes work. When I started counseling, the very last thing I wanted to do was take on another responsibility. And I think maybe that hug I got in our kitchen gave me the fuel to take on the work I needed to to get back to where I needed to be. That counselor walked me through Ephesians 1 and 2 and God fixed my thinking. He, his word, your brothers and sisters, will help you to do that too. It's the only permanent fix. Everything else is a band-aid. Even 20 years later, he is still progressively replacing performance with identity. It's still work. You see the smile? It's work I love now. Point number two. Everyone in this room, if you're a believer, you are also, in the truest sense, a biblical counselor. Your victories are what make you qualified. The power to change the trajectory of a life does not lie within any of us. So put away the excuses and use your victories to steady a brother and sister who is going through their own rough waters. This is a real call. Listen and watch for God-given opportunities and take them. I know it feels risky and I know you feel inadequate because you are. And I am. But what an incredible adventure it is when God uses your feeble efforts to change the trajectory of a life. Listen to him, trust him, and speak the truth in love. Number three. Please, please, please work to find your identity in Christ. In, the God, in who God declares you to be. Our crazy, messed up world is screaming at us with fake promises about our identity. And they're all dead ends. Your standout career, your impeccable home and car, your thoroughly researched social and political stands, they're all false promises and they will all burn. Who you are in Jesus is forever. Please spend your days becoming who you already are in the eyes of our loving God. When my older kids left our home 
to go out with their friends, one of the last things I would say to them is this. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. For you all and for me. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. Pray with me. God, we are grateful. <laughs> Same prayer I prayed when I started. We're grateful for you. We love you. We're grateful for your word. Help us to love you and your word better that we might be better lovers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, if there is somebody listening who's struggling right now, give them the measure of strength to reach out for the person that you've appointed to hear from them. God, in your grace, meet us where we are. And for that one that might be called upon, give them clarity. Give them a sense of your leading and guidance and direction. And enable them, in spite of their fears and their true view, that they're not capable to trust you and to allow you to work through them. God, what a privilege it is when you choose to take our feeble efforts and use them to change somebody's life. We want more of you. Would you condescend to meet each of us where we are and draw us to yourself? Give us the strength we need to, to progressively put off the Romans 7 in us, our performance judgments, and to replace that with who you say we are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to let you go shortly, but I've got some commercials. I've told you this before when I've been up here, but I love a saying that Matt Slack uses which is, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that there is no place for the vocational biblical counselor in today's world. I am saying that God's original design was for spiritual leaders and brothers and sisters to hold each other up. But God's original design was to live without sin with Adam and Eve in the garden, and we messed that up. Um, why do I say that? First of all, I think in today's world, biblical counselors play a great role in helping earnest believers fix their stuff. And that leads right into a prayer request. <laughs> I am in year two of taking uh, courses uh, that, if I am able to complete them, will lead to a certification in biblical counseling. Your first question is, what does that mean? And my answer is, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Kelly and I... We set out on this adventure, and we've talked about it a lot over the last year and a half or so, and we have no idea what God's doing. It's just honest. I'm loving every minute of it. I, I drive to Batavia to take the classes. Never, the drives never bothered me. It's really cool. I've loved doing the homework. I've loved learning and growing more. 
So pray that we'll connect with what God's doing. We've got some pretty big dreams. I don't know if that's what he's got planned for us, and that's okay. But pray for us as you think of us. Two more things, and then I'll let you go, I promise. This book, In the Grip of Grace. Uh, I read it when I was in that place, and it helped a lot. Uh, if you get a chance, if you've never read it, pick it up. And honestly, if you can't afford it, I think I still have a few copies at home. I've given more copies of this book away than any other book I've ever owned. It's a great book. Oh, and I'm not getting any proceeds from this stuff, just so you know. <laughs> the second one I'm reading now. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, People in Need of Change. I love that subtitle, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. Um, if, if this thing I've been talking about, the wonderful graphics and all that crazy stuff, if it's, if it's of interest to you, pick up this book. It is incredible. It's, it looks kind of thick in its, I guess, pseudo-academic, but it doesn't read pseudo-academic. This thing is a breeze to read. It is super practical. And you can ask my family, I find myself, you know, just sitting reading, and, and I stop and, and I read it out loud to them. It, it's that accessible. So if you have interest in this topic, I would absolutely recommend that you pick up a copy of that. But you can't have this one because it's the only one I got. <laughs> that is all. Next week, Pastor Ellen will be back and we'll get back to our new routine, or our, our old routine. Thanks very much and have a good week. <laughs>